I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody? I'm your super lover, undercover. Anytime you will discover there's no other, not my brother qualified to be another on-time mastermind. I'm doing fine, but not as fine as this professor of art history, Lizzie Dastan, and that's what I'm asking everybody here to acknowledge that I'm an incredible MC. No, I'm kidding. That, that to, was marvelous. <laughs> to acknowledge that uh, we're here for another episode of Art Attack, and I'm super inspired because we are talking about Philly. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Lizzie, are we going to talk about Philadelphia? Because when Lizzie brought up the topic of Philadelphia, I was like, wow, I don't think I know anything about art in Philadelphia, except two things, which we will ex expand upon in a minute, which is the Rocky Balboa sculpture and Cornbread, the father of graffiti. That was the only two things I knew about Philadelphia and art, for the most part. I know about their basketball team, their football team. I've had a lot of signings there, the people, very cool people. I'm from New York City, so Philly is it's brotherly love. And those are my brothers. I love you. And I want to talk about cornbread, because cornbread, everybody thinks that the origins of graffiti come from the deep borough of the Bronx, from the originators like... Tacky, Tacky 183? Tacky. He's Greek, and so it's... Okay, it's good office. And the other, uh, Tracy 168, and all those guys. But those guys who were early pioneers of graffiti and lettering and getting up and going all city, before that, there was cornbread. And Cornbread's crew. And this was in the 60s. And Cornbread would do kind of like calligraphic long letters. And he would get up. He would write his name. They would all write their names in, the, in that crew in Philly. And so that was really the first time that we saw inner city urban graffiti. Because obviously, if we talk about graffiti, we could technically, theoretically go back to the cave paintings at Lascaux, France. We can go back to Egypt, to the tombs and the pyramids. But we don't want to get too esoteric. Absolutely. So to me, the most engaging, artistic intersection with Philadelphia, with the city. Did is you do this because you said the word intersection? I did. I love it. Yeah, I just I know. got so Every, excited. Intersections become the hottest word. So like if you use it, it's <laughs> Lizzie feels like you, it was like buzzy. a it was like buzzy, but yeah. you felt self-conscious about how buzzy it was. Oh, that wasn't self-conscious. Oh, okay. That was confidence. Oh, that was okay. intersectional. I thought you were like. <laughs> <laughs> like more no. eh, people who are just listening to us they're like what is happening yeah don't worry about it Go ahead. so this guy albert barnes he had a lot of money in pharmaceuticals and he was an incredibly courageous collector and he bought all of the modernist greats and he has cezanne's card players and matisse's dance such of a good life one. phenomenal stuff and he turned his house into a museum and a school Mostly a school. And it was in Lower Marion, which is about five miles outside of downtown Philly. So pretty close, but in the suburbs. And he opened up his space to students and to various art enthusiasts, but only on particular days. And it was such a special 
way of exhibiting work because he would have spoons or older Renaissance pieces next to a Matisse or a Cezanne. Now, is this open to the public? I mean, do you have to pay to get in or is it free? I think you had to pay. It was nominal, but it wasn't quite open to the public in the way that it will be by the end of the story. So anyway, each wall was a theme. It was a story. And I got to see the Barnes Foundation in its original location. And it was so much fun just walking around every wall, trying to decode the logic of Barnes. And he invited critics and members of the Philadelphia Art Museum, and they hated it. And he got really upset by that and, of course, very affronted because here he is, this innovative collector, and it just was rejected by the mainstream. So he said that the Philadelphia Art Museum was filled with intellectual prostitution. That was a quote. Wow. Right. So I wish I really knew which paintings he was referring to, though. In the Philly Art Museum? Yeah. Like it's a contemporary was, art? Is that that's what he was talking about? Modern art. So right. the Matisses. So we're in the, the first few decades of the 1900s. But I think it was the collecting mindset that he just saw as really staid and mm. conservative. So he vowed that his collection was never going to go to the Philadelphia Art Museum. And then he wrote up a will and he said this explicitly, and he said that the collection could never be broken up, no works could be sold to fund the collection as a whole, nothing could be exhibited in other spaces, it was all his art in his home. And then he died tragically in a car accident, and that's where the controversy begins, because almost from day one after his death, people have been trying to make money off of his collection and try to exhibit the show in other museums, which they have, but it is cannibalism really of his original intention for his home collection. And I think it's unethical and the story really unfolds in a multitude of ways. And if you're interested, there was a great documentary called the art of the steel in 2009 that outlines the whole thing. But I remember when I was in grad school, this massive moment of inquiry. Is it going to get folded into the Philadelphia Art Museum or will the Barnes be saved? And it's not, it was not saved. And it's a part of the mainstream in downtown Philly. And I really think that is illegal too, because he explicitly stated that he didn't want this to happen. Oh, Lord. Wow. So that was really intense, but the collection itself is worth billions upon billions Mm. of dollars, and it catapults Philadelphia as a major art tastemaker in the United States. And it's upsetting that this jewel box of a museum is now just a part of a traditional museum viewing experience, but I guess the, the real joy is the exposure to these paintings. Yeah. At the end of the day, you get to see an original Kazan, Cezanne. Saison. <laughs> Just kidding. So uh, the other thing that I know, because I didn't know that story, that's super cool, but what I know that you know as well is the very famous sculpture of bronze uh, of Rocky Balboa. Now, Rocky Balboa was, obviously everybody knows Rocky, the movie. So this was a sculpture that they did in bronze, forged in bronze, of Rocky raising his hands in triumph that was created for Rocky III. And, of course, everybody knows Rocky III for Mr. T, Eye of the Tiger. If you don't, I think it's one of the best Rockies. Rocky I, Rocky III, number one, number two. Rocky II is good, but it's not the best. But 
who that's all subjective. You probably haven't even seen Rocky. I haven't seen a single one. No. Of course you haven't. <laughs> yeah. One of the greatest movies of all time. Anyway, so this guy, what is his name? Thomas Schomburg. Okay. Thomas Schomburg was the sculptor who did this. In fact, if you look at it, you think it's sculpted with his hands, but he did one of those live casts where he put the stuff over uh, Sylvester Stallone's face and put straws in his nose and actually cast it, which is so weird because it doesn't really look too much like Sylvester Stallone. You know what I mean? Like you think if you would do that, you couldn't lose a likeness. No offense to Thomas, but like I was like, that doesn't look any, that doesn't really look like Rocky. I mean, it's a white guy with thick black hair, you know, thick hair, but it's not really Rocky. Anyway, they used it as a prop in the movie. And then I believe the story goes, because now you have to understand, this is one of the most iconic pop cultural artistic things in Philadelphia. When you think of Philadelphia, you think of a couple of things, the saying, city of brotherly love, and you think, oh yeah, the Rocky sculpture. There's a couple of things you always think about, just like New York's, oh, the Empire State Building, you know, just like LA is Hollywood Boulevard or the Hollywood sign. Rocky Balboa's sculpture that was done as a prop in Philly is one of those emblematic things. So the museum didn't want it where it was because they were like, that's not art, right? It was at the top of the stairs next to the Philadelphia Museum. And they were like, that's not art. That's a prop. And everybody else was like, nah, that's, that's real. In fact, they got a lawyer from, I think, production who wound up lawyering this case outside of production and took it on with a bunch of other people that this is actually art and, sh and it should say here because it's emblematic of the city. I think they kicked out the sculpture and then they brought it back eventually because they, you know, and that just going ahead here, but that becomes like, is it art or is it life? Is it life or is it art? Like it's, it's bizarre, right? Because you're using a prop from a movie which the museum thinks is commercial. Right? It's, it's much like people go, well, you're not an artist, you're an illustrator. And it's like, tell that to Michelangelo, who's <laughs> illustrating Pope Julius II's ideas. That's what an illustrator is. So that's what he did. He was basically an illustrator of prop, but he was an artist. So it's a hard line, and I love that line, by the way. It's, a, it's an amazing line to tell, because on one side, it's art. On the other side, it's a prop in a movie, and it doesn't deserve to be here. So what do you think about that? Well, I think that towing that line also, on the one hand, it legitimizes the prop because of its positioning right by this incredible world-renowned museum. But on the other hand, it makes the museum more accessible because we have a movie that mo everybody but me has seen. Right, right. Okay, so... <laughs> and it's really, it's symbolic. So you say that it's emblematic, but it also symbolizes mm -hmm. overcoming obstacles. Sure. And also there's an economic rise right, that Rocky comes from modest economic means and then yeah. he becomes this great champion. Yeah, and that anything is possible. Like, it's really a celebration of hope that you can overcome anything, anything is possible, and it is, it is, a, it is a great story. You should see the movie. And by the way, Rocky one is amazing, but it would be very weird now. There's a lot of weird stuff that necessarily would not fly in this generation. Uh, just wouldn't, you know what I mean? It's just... Like, you're like, oh, my God, damn, that's hard. It's hardcore. Uh, but it's beautifully done. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I'm not crazy, to be honest. 
Like I'm telling everybody, like I look, I'm gonna tell you what I think. I'm not gonna sugarcoat anything. I'm gonna tell you like it is, everybody out there, because everybody, uh, and I hope you guys appreciate this with respect to art. And by the way, this is that being said, this is my opinion. But my opinion is, I look at that statue and that bronze, and I go, it's good. It's not great. I look at a Rodan thinker, and by the way, I love the idea. I I wish it would have been sculpted by um, you know a, a monster sculptor. I look at like, you know, Donatello, you know, Michelangelo, Rodan. Look at Rodan. If Rodan would have done that, I'd be like, ooh. You know, and I wish it was that. And I don't care if he did it as a prop. The prop is not the issue. It's the quality. It's the artist. No, I get that. But I do think it's a really cool, special convergence of two different forms of art. And I actually give the Philadelphia Museum a little bit of credit for keeping Mm -hmm. it there. And it's so much fun to run up the rocky steps Shake your fist. Dun, dun, then... dun, 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 dun. Keep talking. Oh, dun, cool. Dun, 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 so now, dun, 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 now that I'm running up the stairs, um, I'm breathless. This is so hard. All this exercise. So we're at the Philadelphia Museum. And let's go inside. <laughs> so once we're in the Philadelphia Museum, I just wanted to highlight this one installation that I think is the most significant because it was done by my personal favorite artist, Justin Bua. What? <laughs> no. My second I favorite love this. artist. This is a great show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My second favorite artist, Marcel Duchamp. And he did this work in the Philadelphia Museum that he said, I only want this to be unveiled after my death. And so automatically that frames the controversy, the in this case sexuality, the assault of the work in a really intensified way. So it's called Etan Donnet. And you can only see it if you peep, almost like you're a voyeur, through this wooden door. And then when you look, it's an individualized experience, one viewer and then the art installation. So it becomes more intimate, as if you are complicit in the scene. And I think that's a really smart viewing strategy because it's one-on-one, you and the art, as if you were the person violating what you will see. So you look through the wooden door and there is a female figure, you can't really see her face. She's in this tall grass area and her body's nude. And it looks like she is either a victim of violence, murder, or sexual assault. And it is hard to look at. It's not like there's blood. Her body is clean. It's hairless. It doesn't have any distinguishable features, but it still vibrates, resonates with something sinister. And what I think is most interesting about this is considering the date and also Duchamp's allegiance to the Surrealists, I think that this was a direct result of the Black Dahlia murder, which happened in Los Angeles, not coincidentally, in 1947. And the guy that we think murdered the Black Dahlia, he knew all the Surrealists. And Man Ray was a close friend, presumably also Duchamp. And the way that her body is positioned in this tall grass environment that was very similar to the way that the Black Dahlia herself was murdered. So I think that this is Duchamp's visual tribute or at least way of processing this murder. And it also is shrouded in mystery because how did he know? Why was he doing this? And why did he feel so guilty or weird or uncomfortable about it that he didn't want anyone to know until after he died? Yeah, you got to wonder, like, just with everything, like what, it, what, and we'll never know. And that's what's great. And that's what's really great about art. Who killed Tupac? 
Who Killed Biggie, Nipsey Hussle, Marcel Duchamp, Black Dahlia. I mean, these are this part of the unfolding mystery. And when you have mystery around something, there's so much intrigue. And that that's what makes it, that's what sets it apart from everything else. And it adds everything. And that's what I love about artists like Picasso, who says, I'm not going to give you an interpretation. You need to interpret it yourself. You know, that's what I love about the Mona Lisa. Leonardo wasn't there giving you an interpretation. He wrote it down for the masses. We all have to look at the Mona Lisa and be like, what's happening in the Mona Lisa is that she's super, you know, like you don't know what's going on in the Mona Lisa. It's only projection. But I love it because it creates intrigue. And without that, what is it? It's true. And actually, Marcel Duchamp, he believed just what you were saying. And he said that no artwork is complete without the viewer. And I think that mm. sentiment is literalized in Etan Donnet because it is such a funneled in exchange of energy between this one solitary figure who's rendered in an artistic manner and then the one solitary viewer. You can't crowd around this peephole. It has to be that one-on-one. -on -one. And I think that direct implication of the viewer is so smart and it's a really inventive installation style. And even though Barnes said that the Philadelphia Museum was incredibly conservative and this intellectual prostitution, I would disagree with that because I think that some of the choices that the Philadelphia Museum has made in more recent years, including the installation by Duchamp, including the choice to have the Schomburg statue, it actually shows a lot of creativity. And thank you for this PSA from the Philadelphia <laughs> Art Museum. He's waving right now. Yeah. <laughs> for those no, we, we, have a, we have a YouTube now. What? We have a YouTube. So We're people on can camera? Yeah, people can watch us oh, now. Oh, cool, cool. <laughs> so by the way, guys, you can watch us on YouTube these days. Just find our show on YouTube, and uh, obviously you can listen to, listen to us, but we've had something like 65 episodes where you could not see us whatsoever. So now we're getting into the whole, you could get the whole experience in a much more three-dimensional way. Yeah, check in so you can see how pretty Justin is, how we nope. don't speak with notes. It's all yep. fascinating. Yeah, so we are not, we're, and I love that, by the way, and I got that from Lizzie because Lizzie does not have any notes. Her notes are right here in her head. So, yeah, and, I, and we don't, we go off the cuff. Like, it's amazing. Most people are like, cheat sheet, computer. We don't have any of that. This doesn't exist. Okay, hold the cue card. Thank <laughs> you so much. Cue card, so, that's so 70s. I would be remiss to talk about the city of brotherly love and not mention the Magic Gardens, which okay. they are really fun. It's folk art. It's participatory and I think energizing the practice of Gaudi in Spain. Mm. And it was a little bit lesser known, but Michelle Obama has been photographed there, so now everybody knows. And I think that we should funnel a little bit of attention on that because okay. it relies on the collection of found objects, and everything looks like this beautiful mosaic. And I think that aesthetic, the, the vanguard practice of folk art, is really important. And it is Gaudi. No, 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 it's not Gaudi. It re-energizes the aesthetic of okay, Gaudi. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so his park, Park Güell, I believe, mm -hmm. in Barcelona, 
That Barcelona. Was my, yes, exactly. Barcelona. That was my immediate reference when I saw it. But what I love about this garden is that it really activates the viewer in a very physical way. And to me, that's where I think art is going. That we're no longer interested in staid and static art that is contained in a frame up against a wall. That seems like a really passive interaction. Okay. Now people want to take a photo of themselves with the art. They want to, as Duchamp said, complete the work through God, their I hate own... that. Do you? Yeah. I mean, it's so... It ends a certain power of the image unto itself. Like, why... It's so indicative of, the, of like, me. Look at me. I, I, me, me, my. Oh, my God. I want to be part of this. Snap a picture of me. It's all about me. To me, that's what it is. And, and I, I could understand Duchamp kind of honing into what that is. And that's technology, that's Instagram, that's Snapchat, that is YouTube, that's everybody being so like, I need to be a celebrity, I need to be out there. And that's why they need to participate. And that's why when you see those wings by your friend, everyone's like, snap a picture of me, post it on Instagram, Snapchat it, get it out on Facebook, Twitter. It's like immediate gratification of a kind of, it, it's a narcissism. It's like a very bizarre narcissism. I agree. And I also think that power yearns to be dismantled. And there is a beautiful power to that old traditional experience with art, but that's also precious. And I think that it's limited. But if you introduce the viewer in a much more active way, then you're going to extend the organic life of the object. Because of the nepotism. Nepotism? I mean, let's cut that. <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> because of the, the self-obsession, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I could see your point too. I mean, I think that there's, you know, kids always involve themselves with art. Kids climb on sculptures and statues and, you know, it's different. Uh, and I could see it in that way, but in another way, I see it as an incredible amount of just ego. So I see both. But it, look, great to check it out. I mean, I, 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 I like interactivity, but I feel like it's more of a... Uh, a gimmick than it is an art form for me. And it could be. And it's very possible that that's how we're going to look back and see this time. But I just see, I really feel like the participatory nature of art and the interactivity, as you say, that that is the next frontier. And so I see I, that as I agree. playfully and exuberantly expressed in these gardens in Philadelphia. And I see that as the beginning of the end of what we know as art. And it's a sad, you know, ceremony of, uh, narcissistic, ego, maniacal, self-indulging, enabled, spoiled people. Interesting. Sure. I like how your voice went low in that uh, super intense moment. But do you know how many times people have said that art has died? Yes, Rachenko said that he killed art in this painting. Dude, that I was around in, I was in 1980s when my friends were like, yo, hip hop is dead, son. And I was like, do you think so? And they were like, dude, hip hop is dead. You know, here we are, 2019, J. Cole. You know, Jay Z, Jay Bua. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> anyway, thank you guys for listening. And more importantly, please write us a review because we work tirelessly on not studying for this. And no, I'm kidding. We, we, <laughs> I study. <laughs> no, you, of course we do. We bust our butt for this. We love the show. And that's what we love. We love art. You know, Lizzie. Lizzie and I both share that. Like, obviously, we've come together as a power team. Wonder Twin Powers Activate. But we love art, and we do this because we love it, and we want you guys to support and just write a review. Thank you.